4 through 8. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Let us hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. This is the perfect inerrant word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. This is one of the strongest warning passages in all of Scripture, if not the strongest warning passage in all of Scripture. It is a warning that drives fright into the hearts of those that read it and those that hear it. What is a warning? A warning is a notice. It's an alert. It's an alarm to some impending danger that lies ahead. It's meant to stop a person from proceeding any further. And so the alarm bells are ringing loudly in the passage before us. The the red lights are pulsing and the siren is sounding as we read this. It's the third warning passage and Out of the three that we've looked at, this is likely the most severe. We're told in chapter 2 not to drift by doing nothing, by not growing. We're told in chapter 3 not to fall away because of an unbelieving heart that leads to disobedience. But now we come to a warning in which we are warned in absolute terms. It is impossible to be restored to repentance for those that fall away. Those are absolute terms. There's no escaping the reality of the text. And so I don't have to tell you this is a controversial passage. Very controversial. If you read 30 commentaries, you'll have 30 different interpretations of this passage. Now, I normally don't like to go through all the various different ways that we view a specific scripture, but I think it's so important with this one. In the Christian faith, there are those that believe you can be saved by God, you can be given by the Father to the Son and sealed by the Holy Spirit, and then by your own disobedience, you can lose your faith, you can lose your salvation. You can lose what has been bought by Christ. That's what we would call the Arminian view. And many people that would interpret this passage exactly according to that view. And we reject that view. When I say we, we as in the doctrinal position of our church reject that view. And this pulpit 
strongly rejects that view. There's a view that says this is merely a hypothetical warning. I, I reject that view as well. It, it's not a hypothetical being given here. Hypotheticals are hardly true warnings. What we have here is a warning to the Christian church. There is the view that this is speaking to almost Christians, like they're, they're almost there, but not quite yet there. They're trying to get there. That's a very common view. I don't think that that does justice to the, the text. There's the mixed view, that this is a, a mixed group of Christians. There's, there's those that are truly Christians, those are not. Well, that's true of any Christian church. While we believe in regenerate membership as a Baptist church, that's a Baptist distinctive, is regenerate membership. Uh, we also recognize that within the church, there can be those that have falsely professed. I don't think that that deals seriously with what the scriptures are in this text of those that are being addressed. So I think we need to just look at the text itself and see what it says, and, and also this is something we have to always be open to, is I, I don't want, and I hope you don't want, your presuppositions, your theological convictions to determine the meaning of the text, but rather let the text determine its own meaning, and also recognize that whenever we come to any one passage of Scripture, that one passage of Scripture is not definitive for everything else that the Bible says about something. We have to look at the Bible as a whole. We have a complete canon of Scripture, and so no one verse singly defines a doctrine or forms our theology. This is why Paul says, I did not withhold from you the full counsel of God. And so we have to look at this passage not only in the context of Hebrews, what the passage means, but also within the totality of Scripture itself to come to an understanding. I want to look at it this way with three W's. The first is warning. The second is who. Who's being addressed in this passage? And then what are we being warned about? I think if you, if you see those three things, you'll be able to come to grips with what this text is. The first thing is the warning that we see. The warning starts in verse 4 and comes to a culmination in verse 6. It says, for it is impossible. Now what we have to see here is the for connects us to what had preceded this verse. And what preceded this verse is the author is telling the audience that they had become dull of hearing. In verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. In many ways they had become lazy in their Christian walk. And he tell, goes on to tell them that they need milk because they were not ready to process solid food. They were immature. They were lazy in their faith. They were not growing in their faith. And so we have to see that context before we can understand the warning. And so the implication is this, of the Christian that's not growing in their faith, they are in danger of what is warned of here. We have to see that. The Christian that's not growing in their faith, the warning applies. 
Now, we all have valleys and slumps. We all have periods of time where we experience tremendous growth by God's grace in our Christian walk. We experience times where we're really hungry for the Word of God, and we experience times when we aren't so hungry for the Word of God. That's not, that's not being addressed here. This is speaking of a very serious issue that has taken place, a, a situation that these Hebrews were in danger of and that Christians that proclaim Christ have been in danger of for the last 2,000 years. And so we have to begin with this point as our context. Christians grow, period. The Christian faith is a growing faith. If, if it's not true, then we must deny the union of Christ which we are said to have, that Christ dwells in us. We must deny the work of the Spirit which is promised to us. Christians grow. And a Christian not growing is a contradiction in terms. Full stop. That's it. A Christian grows. They grow at different speeds, different rates, and it looks differently from one to another. We can't compare one another to one another. Our only comparison is to Christ. But Christians grow. Christians need to grow. And so as we see this promise here, we begin to see the purpose of these warning passages. Wait, Christians grow, and if a Christian is not growing, they're in danger of what's warned of here? Does that not hit us? And does that not drive us to Christ to plead for his help? To plead for grace that we might grow? Knowing that we cannot grow of our own initiative? Now that's the connection to it is impossible. So what is impossible? You have to go to verse 6. Verse 6, it connected to verse 4. In fact, in the NSAB, they put these two parts together, even though they're not there together in the Greek text. But it does help. What is impossible is to restore them again to repentance, those that have fallen away. Let that hit. Those that have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Now, if you're hoping for some mysterious Greek nuance that I'm going to tell you that impossible doesn't mean impossible, and it's going to alleviate the language of the word impossible, I'm sorry to disappoint you. The text means it is impossible. Literally, it means a lack of power to achieve something. It means impossible. It describes something that is out of our reach. It describes something that is beyond our capabilities. It is impossible. And so, in other words, what we see here in the text is this. It's impossible to restore, or you could say renew, or revive those that have fallen away. And the word for fallen away is one word in Greek, which means apostatize. To commit apostasy. And simply what apostasy is, is to turn from the faith. And so the warning is against forsaking the faith. The warning is about abandoning what they once clung to. 
And the statement is this, is if they have walked away, they do not have the power to return. It's impossible for them. They won't. Now, that much of the text is pretty much agreed on by everyone. And that brings out the strength of the passage. Scripture makes that very clear. And I think in our experience, we've probably seen this in our Christian walk, where we see someone that seemed outwardly like a Christian, they walk away from the faith, and you never see them come back. I don't don't think that that's always true, but you see that often. I've experienced that, and probably you have, with heartbreak, experienced that as well. Where the disagreement comes in, though, is lies in the word them. To whom is this being addressed? Who is them? That's what we have to figure out here, is the who. We're given clear statements on the who. We're given descriptions of the who. And in my estimation, it's interesting, as I surveyed the the commentaries, I, I actually thought those that held the Arminian position, those that believe you could lose your salvation, that's the position I reject, they actually oftentimes brought out the best insight of the descriptions here. Whereas often others that maybe held a more similar view to the view that I, I think is right ignored some of the relevant points. And so we need to, we need to take seriously what's described here. The first point that you see is that those that had once been enlightened. Now, the word once indicates a definite event. This is something that's happened. It's a concrete point in time. There is some point in in one's life where there comes this change. And that change here is the word enlightened. Now, enlighten, when you look at it in Scripture, it's what takes place at conversion. The light of the gospel has entered into their darkness. In fact, chapter 10, in verse 32, reads this, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened. It's speaking of that definite change of the gospel and the light of the gospel entering into the darkness of the heart. And throughout Scripture, the idea of light pervading darkness is a picture of a life changed by the gospel. Enlightened is passive. It's something that has happened to someone at a specific point in time. Something has happened to those that are described here that this warning is for that has happened to them outside of themselves. And when you think about Scripture and some of those theological words we use, like regeneration, it almost sounds like regeneration being described here. I don't believe this could be applied to one that is born again, but that's the picture. Now, I do want to deal with one thing. is The early church... The first few centuries of the church, they interpreted this enlightenment as being baptism. Almost universally, the early church fathers interpreted this as baptism, but the problem is is that there's nowhere 
is this word used for baptism until about the second century and only for a short period of time. So it certainly does not mean baptism. In fact, Calvin says he calls it illumination. It hence follows that men are blind until Christ, the light of the world, enlightens them. So again, it's speaking of light entering into darkness in the life of a person. You would say that of a Christian. If you're a Christian, there comes a point where you have been enlightened. The second thing is this, is they've tasted the heavenly gift. That speaks of new life. They experience that which comes from above. That's the idea of heaven. They've tasted something from above. Now, many here say taste is different from swallowing, and you'll read in many commentaries where they'll say, well, a chef may taste something and realize it doesn't taste good and spit it out. But the interesting thing is, is if you hold that view here that that's what, he's mean, what he means, then how do you explain chapter 2, verse 9? I want you to see this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Did Christ just merely taste humanity, just merely taste death, and then spit it out and reject it? Or did he fully embrace it? It would be interesting for the author to use it one way in one place and to mean something else different. But the problem is, is that we sometimes miss this very simple thing, is tasting is metaphorical. And in many ways, you can see the picture of the wilderness wanderings of Israel under Moses' leadership. In fact, this whole passage brings to mind what the wilderness generation experienced. They tasted the manna, but yet they fell from God. They were enlightened in that God literally led them by light, but yet they fell from God. They depended on the heavenly gift experienced the heavenly gift. They tasted of the heavenly gift, but yet they fell. And so taste is simply just symbolic of embracing something fully. I think that's crucial in understanding the text, is that they embraced what was taught to them. They embraced with all of who they were what they were given. Now, what the text does not say is that they were forgiven. The text does not say that they were justified. The text does not say that they were sealed by the Holy Spirit. The text tells us that they tasted of the heavenly gift, fully embraced it. Next, you see that those that are described here are those that shared in the Holy Spirit. That is, that they participated in the Holy Spirit. That's what the word shared means. It means they participated. And the same word is used of Christ in His humanity in chapter 2, verse 14. Again, it's important to look and see how the the text is using these words. In verse 14 it says, "...since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook 
of the same things. That is, he participated in the same things. And so it's a participation in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very problematic. Now, the first thing that we have to recognize is that he's addressing not an individual. He's addressing a group of people. It's possible to share in the Holy Spirit in a group without personally participating in the Holy Spirit, right? Within the church, there could be, we could be experiencing the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, but yet there could be those that are with us that are not personally experiencing it, but they're participating in, in some way. There's, there's that. And if that's not a satisfying answer, I just want you to consider the examples in Scripture where that certainly seems to be the case. You think of Saul, the first king of Israel, where it says that the Spirit was at work in him, but then the Spirit was removed from him. Now, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was given to kings to enable them to perform their kingly duty. But you consider for a second who I think is a prime suspect in the them, in trying to put a name to the them, is Judas. In Mark chapter 6, we read this in verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. Who's in the twelve? Is Judas in the twelve? Look what it says. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. What's interesting about this, and I recognize there's many questions that this might bring to mind that I may not be able to answer for you, but what's interesting to me is none of the disciples came back to Jesus and said, Judas the apostate, who was with us the whole time, was just sitting there idle and did nothing. Actually, the apostles thought Judas was one of them, and that is why when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they all said, but is it I? They didn't say, it's Judas the apostate who had no participation in the Holy Spirit. But rather, they thought Judas was one of them. They experienced ministry with Judas. They saw Judas doing things that they were doing. And we don't know exactly how that looked. But the point is, the text tells us that Jesus sent out the twelve, two by two. They did these things, and no one comes back and says, Jesus, something's wrong with Judas. The next thing you see as a description is they tasted God's Word. And you have to go back to the word tasted. Again, it's, it's fully embracing. They embraced God's Word. In, in chapter 13, in verse 7, where we speak of, 
Uh, you see, this is the, the idea of accepting the word of God. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. This is embracing of the gospel. They have confessed the word of God. They have confessed that they believe the, in the saving truths of Christ. They believe that God sent his son to pay the penalty that they deserve to take. They, they believe that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. They, they have heard that Christ on the cross became sin. The one who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. They've heard that, and they've tasted that. They've embraced that. They have heard that he who is in Christ is no longer under condemnation. They've heard that. They've tasted that. They've professed it. They've confessed it. they laid hold of those truths. says that they've tasted the powers of the age to come. They've experienced God's reign in this present evil age. They've experienced the kingdom now. This is an important point, is we live in this age, but what we see is described in 1 John chapter 4, and verse 3, This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John goes on to say, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That is that while we live in this life, the spirit of Christ is at work in his people despite the schemes and tactics of the devil. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you've experienced that, then you have tasted the powers of the age to come. This is why Calvin says of this verse, we are raised up to heaven, and that knowing the goodness of God, we rely on his word. Calvin says this, say this here means that we have literally been raised to heaven at this time in this present age. Then who is the them? Who is the them? That's our question. Who? It certainly is describing those that appear to be Christians, right? If you're in Christ, all of those things can be said of you. If you're in Christ, all of those things would be true of you. All the signs are there. Or at least by one point, all the signs were there. But there's another clue in the text itself that helps us answer the who. I want, you to, I want you to see this by looking at the text. Notice how the author in verse 1 includes himself. He says, therefore let us. Verse 3, again, he does it again. And this we will do if God permits. The author is including himself in the text, but look at verse 4. The author's absence all the way through verse 6. He switches to them. He switches to those. So whatever we make of this text, the author excludes himself and doesn't come back into the text until verse 9. And so as he speaks here, he's not including himself in verses 4 through 6 where the warning is described. 
And he doesn't do that in chapter 2 where the first warning is. He doesn't do that in chapter 3 where the third warning is, or second warning is. He, he goes back and forth in those verses to describe them and then include himself. But here where it's stated in absolute terms that it's impossible to bring and renew those to repentance, those who have fallen away, he does not include himself in the text. Now, without going to passages that assert our salvation cannot be lost, you'll have to wait till this evening for that. We have to also consider what the Bible whether the Bible describes people that seem to be Christians by all outward signs, but really are not. We already looked at Judas. But just turn over to Matthew 7 for, with me for a second. Let's spend a little time there. I want you to notice what it says in verse 21 in Matthew 7. It says, this is describing the, the bad fruit, the, those that you'll recognize them by their fruits. It says this, is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. That is, when you see that, that repetition, and we've talked about this before, that means there's a relationship established here. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? That would be those that had done things in the name of Christ. By all outward appearances seem to be in Christ. And then verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now look at what the text says. They will say, Lord, Lord, which says, we thought we knew you, but Jesus says then in verse 23, I never knew you. Look at verse 24. Everyone, therefore, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his, his sermons on this passage, brings up this wonderful point that I had never considered until I read him. If you were to look at both of those houses, they look the same. By all outward appearances, you would see the same house. But one had a faulty foundation, and one was built upon the rock. You think of Demas, where Timothy, or Paul tells Timothy, Demas has fallen in love with this world. By all outward accounts, Demas seemed to be one that was in Christ, but he was that house that's foundation was sand. You think of Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8, where he was even baptized until Peter came along and said, may you perish with your money for thinking you could buy the Holy Spirit. So what's being described in Hebrews? It is what we see in those other passages. By all outward accounts, 
it seems like you're looking at a bona fide Christian. It looks like you're looking at someone that is a Christian, but inwardly is not. In verse 7 and 8, the author gives us an illustration to prove that outward look versus the inward reality. Look at verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews 6. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now what you see is outwardly both of these fields receive rain, but one produces poor fruit, the other produces thorns and thistles. Outwardly they receive the same thing things, but inwardly there's a corruption in one and there's not in the other. That illustration is illustrating the who of this text. It is those that outwardly profess Christ, but they do not possess Christ. That's who's being addressed here. And what is the apostasy? What is this apostasy? And maybe in your mind you're thinking, Have I committed it? And if I put that in your mind, well, now it's there. Apostasy is specifically turning away. And what we have to see in the text is they have not done it. He doesn't say that they have committed apostasy. So it's a warning that they don't do it. But what is it? Specifically, because I think there's something very serious described here, and it's told us in the text, since they, it says, are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The meaning of this is very dark. It's a poignant statement. It refers not only to rejecting the work of Christ on the cross, but agreeing with those that crucified him. That's the meaning of the text, that they put Christ back before open shame that they themselves would consent to it. You see, when Christ is rejected and those who are described here in their heart, they actually believe this. This is what's being described. They believe that Christ deserved to die. They do not believe that he was the sinless Savior, the eternally begotten Son of God, but rather a man guilty. So what we're dealing with here and what we're not dealing with, we are not dealing with a backslider. We're not dealing with one that has committed some sin or one that struggles with momentary lapses of assurance or even has doubts. We're talking about that one that moves from professing Christ, They have professed Christ and showing initial signs of growth. You think of Jesus' parable of the sower. One who has confessed Christ crucified for sins to professing in their heart that Christ was rightly crucified as a sinner. They've moved from one to the other. And that describes the blasphemy. So what is this? It is the same thing that we read of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The one sin you cannot be forgiven of. It's describing what John in his first letter describes as the sin that leads to death. 
It's an outright rejection of Christ. It is a final rejection of the heart of Christ. It is to repudiate the work of Christ in salvation. It is to say Christ is a deserved sinner that actually received just consequences for his sin. That's what's being described. That is the apostasy here. Now, the frightening part of this verse is that it flows out of a call to grow. It comes out of a call to move from milk to solid food. And so the implication, once again, is that the one who is not growing is in danger of apostasy. Meaning they outwardly professed and even showed some initial signs of growth, but the problem is that they never possessed what they professed. I cannot wait for the garden season. And I love planting a garden. I love to see the full bloom of a garden and go and pick the vegetables from my garden. But when you plant seeds out there and you start to see other things coming up, you have to give it some time before you recognize, oh, that's my tomato, that's my pepper. Because when a seed sprouts, a lot of times they all look the same. That's the picture here. That's the same picture here that we see. Great Puritan John Owen says, where there is a total neglect of the due improvement of this privilege and mercy, the condition of such persons is hazardous as inclining towards apostasy. What John Owen is saying, because sometimes when you read John Owen, you have to interpret John Owen. What John Owen is saying, those that do not grow and fully blossom are in a hazardous, a dangerous situation, and this warning is for them. And so we have to ask the question, am I growing? Am I growing? Have I moved from milk to solid food? Am I on my pathway from leaving milk and moving into solid food? There's a second thing about this passage that I think we need to think is, if we cannot lose our salvation, and I believe the Scripture speaks very clearly that you cannot, if those given by the Father to the Son and and sealed by the Holy Spirit cannot fall fall away, we have to ask the question, why should we care? If we believe that to be true, why should we care about this warning passage? Well, let me ask you this. If you've examined your heart during our time together this morning, as you heard this, this passage read and we considered the implications of this passage, if you looked into your heart, then you just understood the point of the passage altogether. If you felt the weight of this and looked in the mirror, then you know why these verses are before us. If you felt that frightening moment of terror when you first hear the words, it is impossible, then you know that the Spirit's at work in your life right now. 
You know the whole point of why we have these verses before us. It's to spur us forward. And so let me ask you, what is your response to the Word of God? Is the Word of God leading you to, or spurring you forward to, to join with Paul and strive with every ounce of your being by God's grace alone? Is that what this passage is doing this morning in your heart? Is this passage driving you to the grace of Christ and asking Him for help? Or is this just another passage of Scripture? The third thing that I think we need to think of in light of this passage is this, is the faithful persevere. The faithful persevere. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Those in the faith will endure. A true saving faith is an enduring faith. It cannot help but be an enduring faith. That is clear, the clear teaching of Scripture. However, we also know that God uses means that we endure. So that we endure. And so as we look at these passages that are warning passages, we have to recognize this. These warning passages are true. Every word of this is God's word. And it is intended to be a means in our life to perseverance. In other words, these passages are meant to be part of our Christian walk so that we endure. That when we come to this text of Scripture, this text of Scripture grips our hearts and drives us to Christ. That is the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God in our life that we will persevere. So we ought to wrestle with these texts of scriptures. We ought to spend time on them and meditate upon these because this is God's means of sanctification in your life and seeing that you make it to the end. God uses means. Now, if you have assurance of faith, praise the Lord for it. Praise the Lord. We are told that we can have assurance of faith. And I believe God gives us assurance of faith. Scripture tells us that we can have assurance of faith. This is not meant to destroy our assurance. It must actually work hand in hand with our assurance. It's a warning to not be what is described here, which gives us assurance when we come to the true conviction that this is not describing us. And so these warning passages actually work hand in hand with our assurance of faith, especially when we feel the weight of them, that we are fully and totally dependent upon God's grace. Now let me ask you this. Does this mean that if we see someone fall away, that professed Christ showed initial signs of growth, that we just cast them off and say they can't come back? Let me ask you, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do in the situation where he was denied three times by Peter? Three times Peter denied him. When Peter deserted him in a cowardly act. What did Jesus do to Peter? Away from me? You can't come back? You've messed up too big? No. He was renewed to repentance. 
He was renewed to repentance. We never give up on those that fall away. Because we don't know who the Judas is and we don't know who the Peter is. But we know this is the Judas won't come back and the Peter will. And so as long as we know that there are Peters and Judases in the world, we continually go after them. And if this morning you think, I've fallen away and I've walked away, I can't ever come back. No, you might be a Peter. And you need to cling to the grace of Christ. You need to cling to the cross. You need to come to Christ who gladly welcomes you. We must never, ever give up on those that seem to have fallen away. But we continually pursue them with the truths of the gospel that set us free. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the truth of it. We thank you for the gospel of Christ that sets us free. That in Christ we have salvation, not of our works, but by his work. We are thankful that it's not our righteousness that we're judged by, for we know we have none. But it's by the righteousness of Christ that we are are judged, which is a perfect righteousness. We are thankful that those that are in Christ no longer have condemnation. We are thankful that, Father, your Spirit has sealed us eternally. I do pray for those that may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that have not called upon his name, that you would call them. And Father, if there's any that have, have wandered from the faith, we pray that you would, you would draw them back by your mighty hand. We pray this in Jesus' name.